As uh, Dr. Aiken said, I'm a campus minister by trade. Um, one of the staff here, uh, Jamie Strickland, actually got, he was my boss when I first uh, got my first assignment uh, on Canadian soil. And uh, so I got to work with him for a year and a half, and that was a, a real pleasure. Uh, before that, I was overseas. Uh, I got to serve uh, starting uh, ministries of evangelism and discipleship amongst universities in East Asia, an, an undisclosed country in East Asia. And uh, yeah, in 2020, I took on the role of overseeing uh, the campuses across Canada with Power to Change. And I'm, I'm honestly humbled to be here tonight. Uh, when I was first asked to do this, I, I looked at the lineup of speakers and I thought, one of these things is not like the other, namely me. Uh, they're getting this, this lowly campus, uh, campus worker fellow to go preach alongside guys like John Mahaffey. And so I thought, wow, this is a humbling experience. And uh, I'll tell you a bit of the story of how I was introduced to this because uh, I, gave, I was giving my uh, final paper presentation at my last uh, course at Heritage. It was uh, uh, Christian Apologetics, History of Apologetics with Dr. Haken. And uh, I gave my paper, and afterwards, he, he's grilling me with these tough questions, right? And so I'm a little bit set on edge, and I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure how this is going. Um, and then he, we're on Zoom, because it was a snowstorm, and he sends me a message saying, uh, can I see you after class privately? And I'm like, oh boy, like, <laughs> am I even going to graduate when, you know, in a month's time? And, uh, and, and uh, we meet after class, and uh, he says, hey, I was really impressed with your paper, and uh, would just love to invite you to come and speak of this thing. So um, that was the story. I was a little bit on edge, but anyways, we made it here, and I'm, I'm very thankful for it. So this is, yeah, my family. I uh, got my wife, Amanda, up there. This is taken, actually, just on this past Saturday at a wedding. Got my son, Isaac, my daughter, Elise, and uh, I'm holding my little daughter, Evelyn, who just took her first steps in her life just in this past week. So very excited about that. But tonight, I, my prayer is that tonight is enriching for each and every one of us as we talk about this topic. What is truth? What is truth? This was Pilate's retort to Jesus in the eve of the crucifixion. And I imagine him saying this with some kind of like a sigh as he walks back out to the angry mob and he, he asks them. He knew that Jesus was no threat to Rome, so he says to them, he says, I find no fault in him, but it's customary for me to release to you a prisoner. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they say, no, but release to us Barabbas instead. What is truth? It's a question that people battle over vehemently today. On each side of the political aisle, people are, are trying to claim their, their ground on the truth narrative. You know, on one side, uh, they're saying this. On one side, they're saying that. And the other people, oh, they're, they're, they're just the tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists. Or those people, they're just the, the woke crazy people. So what is truth? Well, truth is reality. Truth is, is facts. It's, it's actuality. It simply is what is and can't be argued with. Oh, this is working great. Have any of you seen this image before? Does this look familiar? It's an image that describes what happens when you click the first link on a Wikipedia page, starting from anywhere, and it will bring you back to, does anyone know what the answer is? Where you end up landing in the end? You end up landing at the philosophy page. So this happens, I believe it's about 97% effective that you will land back on the philosophy page, starting from anywhere. So I recently tried this. I took a movie title uh, called Unicorn Wars. I've actually never heard of the film. If any of you have heard of Unicorn Wars or have watched it, you can recommend it to me. I don't know, maybe it's weird. Um, but lo and behold, I'm like, this isn't gonna work. But lo and behold, within 10 clicks, boom, I'm at the philosophy page. And what is philosophy? Philosophy is a branch of knowledge that explores fundamental questions about the nature of existence, of knowledge, of morality, of reason, of reality. Philosophy is basically just the discovery of truth. It's, it's, it's learning about truth. 
And so this Wikipedia example helps us to understand that the question of what is truth is kind of the question behind all questions. And one definition that I really love of what is truth is that truth is the end of inquiry. When there's no more questions to be asked, then you've at least arrived at some semblance of base reality. You've arrived at the truth. So what is truth? This is the question that not only we are seeking to answer, but the question, this question will function as a launching pad. And so tonight, we're going to talk about all kinds of different, we're going to talk about different definitions of truth. We're going to talk about our journey as a culture. How did we get to where we are today? Why does it feel like Christianity, we, we've, it, within, within Christian circles, we feel like everyone else is just believing in crazier and crazier things. Why do the claims of Christianity seem further and further from home in our own culture? How did we get here? And we'll talk about how we can be active in still sharing the gospel in a postmodern, post-truth culture. And is it even possible? I mean, God has given us a mission, right? He's, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. And this cultural moment doesn't exempt us from that. So how do we remain faithful in a cultural moment to share the gospel? We'll look at examples of how technologies are forcing conversations uh, around things that we take for granted, such as in economics. We'll look at a recent example in the past of, of someone who was a truth teller to his culture, and he helped the church re-engage in its ultimate mission to bring people to Jesus. So that's where we're going tonight. So my hope is that as a result, we'll, we'll each be able to examine our lives, to, to question our, our assumptions, and to be challenged uh, in seeing our blind spots. So let's first start with, uh, where have we come from? So I'm, I'm from Ottawa originally. I did uh, my undergrad in math and stats at Carleton University. That's where I actually first got involved in Power to Change. And while there, I have, a, I have a friend. His name is Wes. He was an excellent evangelist. This guy, like, he, he had the whole argument just laid out. He would go up to people, and we would just sometimes talk to random people. We'd talk to random people in the cafeteria, in the hallways. And he would say, hey, Jesus died for you to free you from your sins. And he rose, proving that he is God, and he's worthy of your life devotion. And the person would be like, yeah, but how do you know that's true? And like, oh, well, we know that's true because the Bible says so. And he's like, well, how do you know the Bible's true? Well, we know the Bible's true because of the study of literary criticism. And we can actually prove to you that the Bible today is actually really, really, like 99.99% close as it was back 2,000 years ago. And he'd, he'd go on this rant, and, and by the end of it, the people would be like, oh, I guess you're right. Like, I should maybe become a Christian. And so he did an amazing job leading people to Christ. Now, this is back in about the mid-2000s. Fast forward 14 years. Uh, I was standing in the student center at the University of Guelph uh, with Power to Change, and we were running this thing called a perspectives booth. So a perspectives booth, we'd set it up in the student center, and uh, there's these, all the, these giant banners. And one banner would say, um, what is the meaning of life? We'd ask the question, and then it'd give you some options to choose from. It would say, what is the nature of God on another banner? And it'd give you some options to choose from. You know, are you monotheistic? Are you polytheist? Are you atheist? Are you agnostic? You can choose. And so it was all these conversation starters that we would use to, to have conversations with students and get, uh, get to the gospel and, and, and share our faith. And so uh, one of the times I was there, I had a, an, my intern, her name was Mackenzie, and she was getting into this really great conversation with someone. She was chatting with her for, for quite a long time, and the person seemed really, really engaged. And by the end of their conversation, the, the, the other, lady, the other long, young lady said, you know what, I can't really argue with anything you said. Like, I think what you're saying is actually true. And she had explained her testimony. She had shared the gospel with her. But then Mackenzie asked her, well, 
well, that's great. Like, let's, uh, what would you like to do next? Like, why don't, why don't you join me at church? Or why, why don't you come to my Bible study and you can learn more about God, this God who loves you? And she said, the young lady just said, uh, no, thanks. I'll just, I'll just uh, wait for God to reveal himself to me in some other way. And Mackenzie was just like, dumbfounded because this really broke all of her evangelistic training models, right? Like the person had intellectually consented that Jesus must be God, God must love her. Like all the, all the doctrines of the Christian faith that she presented to her, she mentally consented, said like, yeah, sure, I believe that. And then she was able to just walk away as if nothing had really transpired. What happened? What happened? Why did the truth not hold any weight for this person? Was she simply unconvinced or was she simply trying to pacify my friend Mackenzie in order to duck away and be left alone? Why after hearing the truth of the gospel was she able to just disregard it as if nothing had happened? Well, I want to take a step back and we're going to go way back. We're going to go back to the 19th century. So believe it or not, there was a time when Ontario was pretty much saturated in the gospel. Canada has a very rich Christian heritage. Let's see, where am I at my slides? Where have we come from? Okay, oh, here. Yeah, uh, Canada has a very rich Christian heritage. I'll go to this slide. Um, less than 150 years ago, there was a very strong Protestant Christian culture here in, in, on the grounds that we're standing right now. Protestant, Protestant, Protestantism, if I can say it right, was the air that people breathed. In 1981, I'll show this chart, 17% of, Catholic, of, uh, of Ontarians were Catholics, and then of everyone else, pretty much everyone else other than this 1.7% minority, went to a gospel-preaching church regularly. Like, they, they sat under the gospel. And I know this is true because Dr. Haken told me in my church history course. So, but this is our heritage. The, the vision of Canada was to establish a nation that displayed glo the glory of God from sea to shining sea and become a model and ascending ground for the world. Psalm 72 is a messianic psalm which speaks of Christ's reign in history as a victorious Messiah with the extension of his kingdom around the world. And two of the verses from that psalm are actually plastered right on the side of the peace tower. There's uh, verse 8, of course, which says, He shall have dominion from sea to sea, which is Canada's motto. And then there's verse 1, which is found there too. Give thy king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto thy king's sons. It's an appeal for God to, to, to give his wisdom to our, our MPs as they make decisions that affect our nation. And this, this verse, it can probably, like that, that last verse can probably be seen by like a million tourists because it's right on the front of the Peace Tower. It's probably in a million tourist photos and they don't even know it. But Canada has a rich Christian heritage and the Canada that we see today doesn't appear to resemble the heart and the vision of what was there once before. Now, I need to put a caveat in there. So, Canada wasn't perfect back in the late 1800s. It was not perfect. You just need to simply look at uh, examples from like the residential schools to know that it was not perfect. We have actually uh, one of our staff members with Power to Change. She's in a different ministry called Connecting Streams within Power to Change. Uh, she's shared her testimony. She shared, she shared her story about how she is a residential school survivor and how uh, one, a nun would lock her in a potato cellar in the dark of winter uh, as a four-year-old. It's just horrendous stuff. And so we know that it wasn't perfect back then, but we know that there was still this semblance of Christian heritage and that the gospel saturated many things. And as we'll talk about later, it's, it wasn't necessarily completely a bad thing that, uh, that this has been lost. It has been refined in many ways, and I, I believe some of, in some ways the church has become stronger. But today, the Western world, I think we all know it, cannot be characterized as a Christian place or Christian culture. Instead, we live in a pluralistic culture. 
One of uh, our Prime Minister Trudeau, he has this motto, diversity is Canada's strength. That's like his, one of his uh, foundational models. So we live, this is just an, uh, it's an example of how we live in a, uh, that we are the height of a pluralistic society. And it's a society in which the church no longer has a prophetic voice. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is by uh, Dr. Timothy Tennant, and he puts it this way. This is what's happened to uh, the church. However, as much as we look back wistfully on simpler times, we must recognize that we are no longer proclaiming the gospel from the Temple Mount of our Jerusalem. Instead, we are seeking to persuade the gospel into people's lives in the midst of the ruckus, pluralistic, experimental, skeptical environment of Mars Hill of their Athens. You see, speaking from the Temple Mount or the proverbial Jerusalem was a place of simplicity. It was a place of declaring edicts. You could just say, thus saith the Lord, and people would have to listen to you. They'd have to obey. But in Mars Hill or, or in Athens, it's a different ballgame. And Tenet obviously here is referring to Acts 17. And at Mars Hill, we recognize that we're not in a place of authority, but rather we're attempting to speak truth in the middle, like into a skeptical and pluralistic environment. At Mars Hill, everyone's sharing their best idea already. It's the place of information overload. It's a place where everyone is to each his own. And Christianity does not have a seat of influence, but is speaking in from the margins. What does this actually force us to change as Christians? Well, it forces us to have humility, to speak from a posture of experience rather than a, posture, rather than a position of power. It forces us as Christians to focus on doing good and to show the love of Jesus and to show that Jesus is good for society and for individuals as well. It's very different than the Temple Mount, where we hold, held the seat of power. We're not there anymore. Your Christian faith is just one of many ideas out there, and there's no point in holding on to any uh, delusion that Christianity holds a perceived authority over people. This is the state that we're in. So, what is truth? There are several definitions, or several, several theories, I should say, uh, for determining truth. And I want to introduce four of those theories, which we'll kind of come back to as well later. The first definition of truth, or uh, theory of truth, I should give, is the correspondence theory. So let's say one of you left your phone on, and uh, it rings, you pick it up, and it's your friend. And they say, hey, I'm waiting for you in the lobby, uh, come meet me. And you say, okay, you hang up the phone, you walk out to the lobby, you see your friend, and so you have asserted that it's a true claim. So that what you heard on the phone corresponds with what you saw in reality. And so that is a correspondence theory of truth. The next one is the coherence theory of truth. So let's say, for example, you are, uh, sorry, I should explain this first. Truth is seen as a logical coherence and harmony of a set of propositions or beliefs. So imagine that you're seeking to solve a math problem. How do you know that the answer that you got to at the end is the right answer? Well, what do you do? You go back and you check your work. As long as you didn't break any of the laws of mathematics or principles along the way, you can know that you arrived at the right uh, the right uh, solution. So that's the coherence theory. There's also the pragmatic theory. The pragmatic theory is uh, if, if a belief works in practice and it leads to a desirable outcome, then well, it must be true. So for example, you believe a stock is undervalued, you believe it will appreciate over time, your belief leads you to invest a, a portion of your portfolio into said stock, and if your belief is true, it will be shown by the practical, practically by the, uh, the appreciation of that stock. And if not, if it decreases, then your belief is shown to be false, practically. And then there's the constructivist theory of truth, which sees truth as a product of cultural, historical, and social frameworks. 
This means that it can vary across different contexts or perspectives. So, for example, consider the realm of history. Uh, different people examine, say, the, the American Revolution. You know, yesterday was July 4th. Let's say the American Revolution. There's different uh, theories on why the American Revolution happened. So for some historians, they may write about how, oh, the, the Enlightenment ideals and, and the ideals of individual liberty were, were, were what really inspired the American Revolution. Another person might come along and say, well, no, it's the, it's the economic factors. It's the, it's, uh, the desire for self-governance. That, that's what inspired the American Revolution. The constructivist theory asserts that the historical truth is not objective or universal, but is constructed through human interpretation, influenced by social context. In other words, there can be no one truth for all. Now, I'm curious uh, if I could get like maybe a one, two, three, or four on your hands, which model, which, which theory of truth do you, do you default go to when you think of what is truth? Can I get a number? One, two, three. Hold up your hands. Four. I'm seeing some ones, twos. Three, two, four. Okay, this is actually quite the spread. This is actually quite the spread. My anticipation was that most people, and I think there was a few more of you in the one or two camp than the three or four camp, but my, 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 my impression is that most Christians, at least in our culture, we tend to the first two models because we, simply because we like things in neat little boxes. We, we believe in absolute truth. It's, it's the default wiring in our brains in evangelical circles. We believe that there are things that are universally and objectively true, independent of individual beliefs, opinions, or perspectives. And relativism has brought about an incredible challenge for gospel-sharing initiatives in our modern day. It, and I, I've seen this in my seminary class. Actually, in the seminary class that I was in just uh, this past uh, few months ago, uh, a conversation uh, came, was happening during one of the breaks. And, and there was some students, they were bemoaning the fact that they're posturing the idea, like, in order to help people know the gospel, we actually have to convert people back from postmodern to modernism, from postmodern to modernism, to be a Christian, because only there can they actually believe in objective truths. And there's this, there's, it, it's there that we can give those arguments, like my friend Wes used to give, you know, what is the, like, how do we know that the Bible is accurate? How do we know that Jesus is God? I wonder if some of you can relate to that. Because if no one can believe in objective truth anymore, how can anyone be saved? Well, I want to talk a little bit about postmodernity and modernity. And I'm going to be drawing upon a really great book that I highly recommend. It's called Evangelism in a Skeptical World. It's by author Sam Chan. And the forward's done by D.A. Carson, so you know it's good. Um, but uh, yeah, modernism. Let's talk about modernism first. So before modernism was the medieval era. And during the medieval period, you could simply kind of ask the question, how do you know this is true? And the answer would be this, because God knows everything, and he's revealed this to us, therefore we know it's true. That was the uh, medieval era. And the real shift came in the 17th century with uh, French philosopher René Descartes. He came up with this axiom, I think, therefore I am. Now, Don Carson says there are six trademarks of modernity, the first of which is displayed by Descartes' phrase. He says, I'm the person, it's, it's this, knowledge begins with I. Oh, I'll go back. Knowledge begins with I. I am the person who determines whether something is true or false. And I do this through reason, through uh, a movement called rationalism, and I do this through observation, using my five senses. This is called empiricism. And note, that, note what's happening here. This only actually works if I'm a, like a neutral, objective, detached observer uh, who, has, who is free from bias. That's the only way I can actually do this. But in his book, Sam Chan, he, he walks through a, a modern testimony. And this is a testimony that you've probably heard at your church before, but it goes something like this. 
I was born into a Christian family. I can remember knowing Jesus ever since I was a child, but this didn't make me a Christian. At the age of 16, I had to decide for myself, so I examined the evidence and concluded that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, and I gave my life to him. What we don't realize is that this testimony is actually shaped by the epistemological framework of modernity. And so, uh, let, let's examine this. So, first thing, there's three things. One, they're not a Christian because of their church. They're not a Christian because of their parents, because that's an invalid source of knowledge. Two, they made a decision as a 16-year-old. So, it wasn't until they were a free-thinking adult that they were actually able to make a decision. And three, they made the decision only after examining the evidence from a detached, neutral, objective standpoint, which is, in modernism, the only valid source of knowledge. And by the way, I've given a testimony like this, so this isn't a criticism. Like, I used to share my testimony in, in kind of the same framework. But I didn't realize, like, how much I've been shaped by the modernistic framework. So modernism begins with I. The next one is first-principled reasoning. All knowledge is built upon bedrock foundational truths. So one plus one equals two, the sky is blue. All knowledge is built upon principles like these. And, and these building blocks, they can be built up into these tall mammoth skyscrapers, one brick upon another. As long as they are coherent, as long as they follow the set of logic, then they work. Three, we discover new knowledge through processes like the scientific method. There's hypothesis, there's observation, there's method, there's outcome. Or, if it's a Bible study, observation, interpretation, application. We don't think about it, but the scientific method has actually influenced the way that we study the Bible, the way that we draw conclusions about what God is saying to us. Four, certainty of knowledge is attainable, modernism asserts. If we apply the scientific method correctly, then we can arrive at objective truth. Or, if we apply the inductive Bible study method, then we can arrive at objective truth. But it is possible. Modernism asserts that it is possible to know the truth. And five, matter is all that exists. In the modernistic framework, there is no God, there's no miracles, and nothing supernatural. You can understand that Christianity has a problem with this, right? <laughs> Christianity has a big problem with this one. And number six, truth is universal. Truth is true for all peoples in all places. So if water boils at 100 degrees Celsius in Hong Kong, it also boils at 100 degrees Celsius in Hamilton. If democracy, this is where it can get kind of sketchy, if democracy is the best government form of government in Canada, it's the best form of government in the rest of the world. So if this is modernism, then what is postmodernism? Well, D.A. Carson, he says that postmodernism isn't so much its own thing, but it's actually just a reaction against modernism. So modernism, postmodernism, whereas modernism says knowledge begins with I, postmodernism says, well, yeah, but I is subjective. You know, so for example, I'm Canadian. I'm born and raised in our country. Why would I have the same worldview as someone who grew up in Saudi Arabia? I, I just won't. I'm subjective. I'm biased. I'm influenced by my culture. And Chan writes, he says this, modernity was at best naive or at worst arrogant to think that the knower could transcend their context. But postmodernity celebrates the different perspectives that are enjoyed by different cultures, languages, traditions, and communities. Have you, any of you heard of this thing called Esperanto? Esperanto, yeah. So this was a dream of, from the late 19th century, the idea that one day we would all speak the same language. And this language was developed by a scientist, I believe, and it was called Esperanto. And 
this plan didn't work out so well, obviously, because what did they fail to do? They failed to recognize that each individual culture has its own beauty, has its own traditions, uh, various, uh, in various languages, there's, there's beauty in that. And even the scripture talks about the value of people from all tribes, all tongues, coming together and worshiping before the throne of God. The modernistic framework uh, misses that. Number two, Truth is free-floating, whereas in modernism, it's all built, think of the, the skyscraper, you've got your, your base foundation, and all, everything's built like a brick on lo, of logic. Uh, in this one, truths are not built upon first principles, but they are free-floating. And they, they're coherent and, and dependent upon related truths, which compose kind of a, a web matrix of beliefs. And, and your web matrix of beliefs is, is different than my web matrix of belief. And therefore, there's really no purpose in asking me to prove my beliefs to you. There's no purpose in you asking me to, you to prove uh, your beliefs to me. You have to be true to yourself, right? Who am I to impose my beliefs on you? That's the postmodern uh, framework. Number three, whereas postmodernism uh, relies on the scientific method, postmodernism relies on, uh, it recognizes that even the scientific method can be biased and subjective. We have presuppositions. We have an end goal that we're trying to achieve. And even the science can be skewed to achieve our own results. Numbers get fudged. Inaccurate conclusions are drawn. Uh, you know, I studied stats at university, and I heard this quote by Mark Twain. He says, there are three kinds of lies. There are lies, there are damn lies, and there's, there's statistics. Because <laughs> we're, we're, we're all biased. The way that we approach scripture is no different. We bring our own context and presuppositions to the way that we interpret scripture. We are prone to have blind spots. Number four, in postmodernism, certainty of knowledge is impossible because certainty of uh, knowledge is limited by our perspective. It's conditioned by our culture. Being 100% certain is either uh, bigoted or it's just plain ignorant. When I first joined staff, or when I first, uh, not even staff, when I was a student uh, in Power to Change back at Carleton, um, we had a lesson. It was like the, one of the first lessons that I, I had in a Bible study. It was called The Assurance of Salvation. And uh, it's a great Bible study. I still use it to this day. But a part of it didn't quite sit right with me. So at the beginning of the lesson, you're supposed to ask your, your Bible study uh, members. You ask them, you know, on a scale from 1 to 100, how sure are you that you have eternal life? And usually the answers come back, yeah, I'm like 80%. No, I'm like 95%. I'm like getting up there, you know. Um, and then the, the, the Bible study leaders to say, you know, by the end of this lesson, you can be 100% sure that you uh, are, are, have eternal life. And I would always bug my Bible study leader because I'd be like, you know, I think I'm at like 99.999 right now. And he's just like, well, what, you know, what will it take? And I'm like, uh, well, I don't know. Like, because in my mind, maybe I, some of the postmodernism had been seeping in. Like, how can I truly be sure of anything? And it just drove my Bible study leader nuts. I do know that Jesus loves me. I know I'm saved by him, by the way. I'll just I'll put that in as a caveat. Uh, but, but Christianity, uh, Christians on a whole, we, we react very strongly to relativism. And uh, I've been reading this book by James K. Smith. He, he says, who's afraid? it's called Who's Afraid of Relativism? And he says this in the book. He says, this Christian reaction to relativism with its therapeutic deployment of absolute truth is a symptom of a deeper theological problem, an inability to honor the contingency and dependence of our creaturehood. So, so Smith, is, he's, I don't think he's being a heretic. He's trying to, trying to emphasize the importance of recognizing our finitude that we, we can't know things absolutely. Only God can actually know things absolutely. We must embrace our creaturehood, he says, to know that, that there is a God and I'm not him, and his brain is way bigger than mine. 
And what Smith is doing, he's pushing back on the sense that many Christians have. is like, this is the way it is, and this is the way it always will be. And he's trying to introduce a bit of humility and say, no, you are, you are a created being. You have rational faculties that have been given to you by God, but they are dependent on that God. So have some humility. And number five, postmodernism challenges naturalism. Postmoderns reject naturalism because it's seen as too narrow and dogmatic. This is actually something that we more closely as Christians align with the postmoderns than the moderns. There is more to life than what we can simply see and touch. There is a spiritual world. God is real. Angels are real. Demons are real. They are living beyond our sight. But this has all kinds of effects. So postmoderns generally will be more open to things like uh, non-linear logical thinking. They'll be open to things like uh, non, uh, like alternative forms of, of medicine. This is kind of the outcome of, of uh, believing in postmodernism. And then lastly, he says this. He says there is no post, or there's no universal truth in postmodernism. It asserts that all facts have been construed. The facts are a product of various cultures and peoples, languages, and upbringing. So, for example, we, we recently celebrated Canada Day. And the vast majority of us think this is a really great thing. The founding of our great nation, filled with all the freedoms and the property rights that we enjoy. The democracy that we enjoy. The things that we often take for granted. And yet, this year, on July 1st, it actually marked the 100-year mark of the enactment of the Chinese Immigration Act. I know this because my wife is, is half Chinese, and she brought this up. She was telling me, like, did you know this? And before 1923, there was 15,000 Chinese immigrants that came to Canada, and they helped build the hardest parts of the railroad. And hundreds of them died in the process. And as a result, we rewarded them by saying, oh, actually, we're going to make it more difficult for you to actually join our nation because we want to keep Canada Caucasian. We recognize that this Canada Day is not necessarily a good thing for all people. It's, it's, it can be a bitter thing for many people. So what is the effect of this? Well, the effect of this is that the, as a result of postmodernism, uh, postmodernism believes that knowledge is power, and it rejects the idea of a meta-narrative, uh, one story that can rule them all and kind of tell the story of creation. The postmodern is a, is a skeptic of religion, of government, and they'll seek to deconstruct them. They'll try to ask the question, like, what is this person trying to gain by getting me to believe this? That's what they're asking. They don't believe in the meta-narrative. They don't believe that there's one single truth for all people across all time and all space. Kevin Van Hooser says it very well. He says this. He summarizes it. Moderns think that it's all truth and no interpretation. Postmoderns think it's all interpretation and no truth. But the truth is, Christianity doesn't really fit at home in either worldview. It, 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 comes, it, it pushes back on, on, very, on elements of both. And there's some that we agree with, but definitely we must reject some of, uh, on both sides. So no, I would say, we don't need to convert someone from postmodernism to modernism to, help, to make them a Christian. They don't nearly need to give a mental consent to a set of beliefs about the truth. Rather, they need to meet the truth. They need to meet the truth. They need to have an encounter with the truth themselves. They need to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Consider our cultural moment today, the discrepancy between beliefs and gender. On the left, there are any number of gender expressions. Be who you want. On the right, there are two genders. Change my mind. 
This guy kind of makes me laugh. He, he, gets in, he gets, man, people get really mad at him. If you ever watch the YouTube videos. Uh, but this is, a, this is a clash of two worldviews that cannot see eye to eye because they believe in different versions of the truth. On the left, you have postmodernism, which tend more towards the pragmatic and the constructivist theories that we talked about earlier. And then on the right, you have uh, the, the other worldviews that say the correspondence, and the, cor- the correspondence and coherence models of truth are what is real. And on the left, you say, they say, this, this just works for me. Like, this is my story. And on the right, they say, this just seems obvious. Why can't more people see it? And these two sides, they don't even know how to talk to each other. They don't even know how to talk to each other. And we're all wrapped in it. Whether we like it or not, we're all wrapped in it. In it. I want to tell a story about um, a, f- a friend that I met recently named Kevin. So earlier this year, uh, one of our campuses, I'll, I'll keep it anonymous, I've changed names, but earlier this year, we, we ran an event on campus that got us in a bit of trouble. So uh, our Christian students at one campus, they were asking, uh, we, they were saying, they came to our staff and they said, we really want more help understanding this whole transgenderism thing. Like, what's, what's it all about? And so we went out there and we looked and we found this speaker. And is this, this great speaker, she's a middle-aged woman, and she had the experience of, of transitioning from uh, being a woman to being a man. And then she became a Christian and she decided, no, I've got to go back to living in my original gender. So she went back to to becoming a woman, and she shares, she goes around and shares her story with people. And so we had her booked, we put up posters, and we invited people to come to the event. The Pride Collective on campus, they heard about this event, and they said, well, we're not going to let that happen, so they protested us. And we were caught in a really awkward spot. Uh, so my local, uh, local team leader there, who I was coaching through this at the time, he's like, like, Dan, what do I do? Like, on one hand, I can just run the event, but then we're going to burn, like, all of our bridges with the LGBTQ community. Like, the hope of actually getting in there and, like, talking to them is just gone. Uh, on the other hand, if we cancel the event, we not only deprive our student leaders of the ability to learn about this, but we're going to have the Christians after us. They're going to be like, you, you weak people, you woke people, like, why would you give in on this? And so we didn't know what to do. So we prayed. We prayed a lot, and we just went and we talked to the Pride Collective in person. We found a, when they were meeting, uh, a few of our staff and students went, and we asked them, like, hey, like, we hear that you don't really like our event. Like, what would, what would a good outcome look like to you? What would you like us to do? And, and so we just heard, and we heard their concerns. Uh, some of you may not like this. We decided to cancel the event in, in its given form and move it into a more in-house setting where our students could still be trained, but we didn't want to burn those bridges. But, but here's the interesting point. So as a part of this, as, one of the, the people that was affected by this was a young man named Kevin. Kevin was so impressed with how we as Christians approached their group that he started, he was, he was a member of the Pride Collective, he started actually coming out to Power to Change events. He started coming and meeting with some of our staff and some of our students. And he started coming to our Bible studies. And on February 24th, this year, Kevin gave his life to Jesus. And I got to be there three weeks after he had given his life to Jesus. And we were at this event where we were looking back on the year, celebrating the year, and, and talking about uh, all the amazing things that God had done. And he got up. We had these uh, non-alcoholic champagne glasses. And he gave a toast. And he said, I just want to thank you all for, for, for leading me to Jesus. And he looked around the room and he named several people who had really impacted his life in helping him know Jesus. And I just, I could, like, it was unreal. He, he's, he's a genuine Christian. He's, like, his, his journey's still messy. Like, he's still on estrogen pills. Like, that, I, this feels kind of weird for me. It feels uncomfortable for me. But he's on a journey, and he's, he's a Christian, and he's studying the Bible, like, religiously. And so I would say, yeah, you don't need to become necessarily a modernist to be, become a Christian. 
But I would like to talk about pedagogy a little bit. So this is uh, an approach that I found very helpful. So in modernism, and this is probably the way that typical uh, evangelicals work, we believe that we need to, uh, in our teaching, we need to share the truth, and then if this is true, then you must believe it, and if you believe it, then you need to start living it out. So it's truth, belief, praxis. What Sam Chan does is he gives this alternative uh, pedagogical method. He says, why don't you flip it around? Why don't you do this? Show people that the Christian life is livable. And if the Christian life is livable, then they'll know that it's also believable. And if it's believable, then they'll also come to realize that it's true. So what initially drew Kevin to our group was not a propositional claim. We didn't go in there and start asserting biblical truths. It was the observance of our character, and, and he saw our Christianity in action. And it wasn't until later that we presented the propositional truths, and he was ready to receive them, and he surrendered his life to Jesus. We must be willing to change our approach. Modernism doesn't save us. We bring people to Jesus, not to modernism. So with this behind us, let us now consider what are some ways that we can actually more closely align ourselves with the truth? How can we make sure that we have a base understanding of reality? And here's where I want to introduce something. This is just a helpful tool that, that can help us align ourselves more closely with the truth. It's, I call it the power of an external perspective. Lack of a better word, maybe there's a better phrase for it, but the power of an external perspective. And I'm going to give two examples. The first one is I'm going to get on a bit of a soapbox. You might think it's weird, but we'll go for it. Uh, and the second one, I, I think you'll, you'll love too. It's, a, it's a personal, an example of a person who really exhibited this to his culture. So, fun fact. Did you know that over the past 30 days, the U.S. debt has increased by about a trillion dollars? In 30 days, over the past month, you can look this up, a trillion dollars. So, you got a stack of $100 U.S. bills on that pallet. That's $100 million. Uh, Ten of those equals a billion. A thousand of those equals a trillion. A trillion dollars is a lot. A trillion dollars is a lot of money. Now, why should we as Canadians even care? Okay, yeah, sure. The U.S. debt, you know, they're up, they're up to 32 trillion dollars now. Whatever, right? Well, you know, our Canadian, in Canada, we hold bank reserves in U.S. dollars to the tune of 55 billion dollars. Most, most of our bank reserves are in U.S. dollars. So this means over the past month, the U.S. has replicated or, or gone into debt 18 times that which Canada holds on its balance in U.S. foreign currency. Kind of crazy, right? But this shouldn't surprise us. All modern fiat currency is debt-based. The government must increase its debt to pay for its obligations. It just has to do it. But where does this money come from? That's a great question. There was a little slip of the tongue back in March 2020. I don't know if you guys have heard this clip. Neil Kashkari, Fed president of Minneapolis uh, Fed president, he said this. He says, uh, there is an infinite amount of cash at the Federal Reserve. Like, whoops, maybe people aren't supposed to know that. <laughs> but think about that for a moment. Because the mechanisms are complicated, but this is the same money that you and I work for all our lives. He's saying that there's an infinite amount at the Federal Reserve. They can just make more at the touch of a button. For some reason, this doesn't really bother most people, but we actually have the conversation, you know, our backyard barbecues, so many conversations, we're, all, we're always talking about, man, things are getting expensive, houses, houses are too expensive, groceries are too expensive, but as I learned in math, there's always a numerator and there's a denominator, you need to think about the denominator more, housing is too expensive, but relative to what? Relative to the Canadian dollar. Groceries are too expensive, but relative to what? Relative to the Canadian dollar. We need to start thinking about the denominator. And forgive me for bringing this up, but this is why I find Bitcoin so fascinating. 
it was probably about 10 years ago that I gained a real interest in finance. You know, I'm, I have no formal education, so take everything I say with a grain of salt, but uh, I, I've read a lot of books and listened to a lot of podcasts. But I, I stumbled upon Bitcoin in 2020 when my house made more money than I did. Like, think about that for a moment. My house appreciated in value more than I earned in my salary, even though I worked really hard in 2020. It was just weird. And I looked, I looked this up, I, I Googled it, and I did the math. The average Canadian income was equal to the average amount that, in, that the house prices rose in 2020. And that was in a year when there was no immigration. So we talked about supply and demand, something else was there. And I kind of realized this at this time, I was like, oh man, the denominator is off. The, 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 you, the currency is actually just crashing, that's what it is. And so Bitcoin introduced me to something that's fixed in value, something that can't be changed, which is, can denominate everything else. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Bitcoin, it really it flips the system on its head. It flips our debt-based system on its head, moving from a debt-based system to an equity-based system. And for the first time ever, we have a transparent monetary policy that can't be changed, that anyone across the world can access with the internet. The concept is, is incredibly absurd, that most people in the finance sector, they still can't get their hands on it. Although, I heard Larry Fink, head of BlackRock, they're you know, filing for their ETF um, right now, trying to get an ETF on uh, spot Bitcoin. Um, he said today that Bitcoin is a global asset. And this comes three years after he's calling this thing like uh, snake oil or whatever it was. So anyways, something, you know, something's changing the finance. Some finances, or maybe financiers are getting, getting uh, they're just starting to tune in a little bit. But Bitcoin really forces us to, it challenges our, our economics right to the core. It challenges, do we, need, do we actually need a central bank? Do we need the Federal Reserve? Do we need 12 unelected people setting the price of the most important thing on the planet, the price of money? Maybe you can tell I'm a little bit passionate about this and take everything I say with a grain of salt, not financial advice. But this is why I'm passionate about it. Because Leviticus 19.35, God told the Israelites, you shall not cheat in measuring, in measuring length, weight, or quality. Quantity, sorry. You shall have honest balances, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hin. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Truth and transparency matter to God. And growing up in power change, we, we've always asked ourselves, how can we reach the leaders of tomorrow? My father, he, he, he's been doing this for like, oh, 30, 40 years. He was uh, what's called the head of the Christian Embassy of Canada. Now he leads uh, another ministry called Embassy Connections Canada. And he's basically been an unofficial chaplain to our MPs, to foreign uh, dignitaries, and to the people of Ottawa, the, the up-and-coming, the, the elite people of Ottawa for 20 years. He ministers to people like Justin Trudeau, to Stephen Harper. That's his, his focus. He, he's reaching what he calls the up-and-out, as opposed to the down-and-out. And I see this in Power to Change, where we're, we're trying to reach the leaders of tomorrow. Like, this is why we're on the university campus. We realize that if all the future leaders of the world are going to be uh, going through university at some point, then we need to focus on reaching university students, because we'll be reaching the leaders of tomorrow. And so when I learned about Bitcoin, I, I learned that, you know, if this thing goes the way it might go, there's actually like a chance, like some of these Bitcoiners, these, they got them really early, they're going to be like super wealthy and super powerful. So I've started a hobby project of trying to reach Bitcoiners for Jesus. It sounds weird, right? I know, I know it's really weird. I know it's really weird. But I'm writing a book, actually. My buddy J.M. Bush, uh, who helped write a book called Thank God for Bitcoin, and I were co-authoring this book, and it's an evangelistic book. It's using the elements of Bitcoin to, as a launch pad to explain Jesus to people and help them come into the kingdom. I'll just leave you with, um, with one more thought. Australian economics... Uh, Austrian economics um, 
economist said this, Frederick Hayek, back in the 19, uh, 1984, he said this, I don't believe we shall ever have good money again before we take it out of the hands of the government. We can't take it violently. All we can do is by some sly roundabout way introduce something they can't stop. So it's external perspective. External perspective is powerful. It challenges our assumptions and it forces us to reconsider our ways. And this is what I believe Bitcoin's doing to the field of economics. So that's my first example. But what happens when an external perspective confronts the Western church? What, happens, uh, what would happen today if, if someone from another culture who who's, would come to West Highland, what would he critique? What would he say that you can celebrate? What would he say that you uh, have as idols? Well, I want to take a minute and tell you the story of Leslie Newbegin. Newbegin is known as one of the greatest missionary theologians of his generation. He's often called uh, grandfather of the missional church movement. He's the author of well over 100 books, articles, lectures. And having lived outside of Western culture for decades, the Lord enabled Newbegin to bring a much needed voice to the church when he returned to the West later in life. And that, that influence was so profound that they call him a father to the church. He was radically missional and gospel-centered and postured that the local church, not the, any particular individual, is the church's primary apologetic. He says this, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is the congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. He grew up in Northumbria, England, and lived from 1909 to 1998. He was the son of a Presbyterian businessman and attended Quaker boarding school. He studied geography and economics at Cambridge. And during his first summer break, he surrendered his life to Jesus. And he surrendered his life to Jesus after seeing a vision. And he describes the incident as follows. He says, as I lay awake in a vision, a, a vision came to mind, a vision of the cross, but it was the cross spanning the space between heaven and earth, between ideals and present realities, and with, the, with arms that embrace the whole world. The vision of ideals of heaven being brought to the present realities of the earth through the cross would go on to define Newbegin's ministry. Soon after college, Newbegin moved to India with his wife. And while there, he engaged in all kinds of ministry, very diverse uh, amounts of ministry. He engaged in street evangelism. He was the patron saint of a leper colony for a season. He studied the Bible with Hindu monks. He engaged in evangelism with primitive cave dwellers. He was even a bishop of a, of a particular significant uh, Indian city for a while. So after 40 years of ministry in India, where he, he, was, he was conformed uh, into the, the Christian Indian way of doing things, he then returned to England. And it was in England where he actually faced his most challenging, uh, daunting challenge yet. The England that he was returning to was incredibly different than the India that he had left. Newbegin describes his experience in the West upon return. He says this, there's a cold contempt for the gospel which is harder to face than any opposition. England is a pagan society, and the development of a truly missional, missionary encounter with this very tough form of paganism is the greatest intellectual and practical task facing the church. He had realized that the, the church had, had fully enveloped modernism. They, they'd envel they had embraced the scientific worldview. There was a loss of confidence in the gospel. He had seen how once the gospel was more of a public thing, and now it had just been relegated to the private sector only. And so thus began Newbegin's second chapter of life as a missionary theologian to the West. And he identified that the primary issue was that the church had lost its missional calling. They had lost their missional calling, and this led to all kinds of church uh, strife and division. He says this, it is not possible to account for the contentment with divisions of the church, except upon the basis of a loss of the conviction that the church exists to bring all men to Christ. What Newbegin observed was that the most desperate need of the church was to recover its missionary encounter with the Western culture. 
And the way to do that was to gain a more full understanding of the gospel through understanding that the gospel is not just a means to personal fulfillment. That's what the church had kind of said. You know, it, you know the gospel is making me better as a person. But, but in actuality, the gospel is so much more. It is a secular announcement. It identifies the goal of the entire universe, uh, the purpose of all creation. All of that is contained in the gospel. Contained within the gospel is a blueprint for how we can understand and how we can relate to God himself. It's a story that reveals the character of God and shows us what it really means to be human beings. The gospel answers the most important metaphysical questions that have ever been asked by any philosopher at any time period. And he describes how the gospel, uh, what it does to a person, what it does to a society. He says, it, first of all, it does four things. It restores our relationship with the natural world. It restores our relationship with our fellow human beings. It restores our relationship even with our inner self. And most importantly, it restores our relationship with God. All of those things formerly were in contradiction, but now they're repaired through the gospel. Perhaps Newbegin's largest contribution to the Western church, uh, as I've mentioned, was his teaching that the local church is the hermeneutic of the gospel, which what this means is that the culture will understand the gospel through the local church. It's, it's more than just leaflets and pamphlets. It's, it's the character of God emitted through the local church to the world around them. This is how the gospel will be understood. And Newbegin describes what that looks like. He says this, the church must, first and foremost, be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The church must live out kingdom values. The church must emphasize character over techniques. The church must be a community of praise and truth. The the church must be concerned about the local community. The church must allow itself to be shaped by other cultures. Remember external perspective. And the church must be filled with joy. He gives these as, as, a, as a benchmark of how do you know your church is making an influence. And wouldn't it be great if our churches were just marked by those things? And for Newbegin, if a local church exists, exhibits these qualities, then they will have a profound missional impact on the surrounding culture. For Newbegin, the, culture, the gospel is, is the standard by which to actually evaluate culture. So when you, when you look at a culture, the, you can look at it through a gospel lens, and you'll find areas, just like in postmodernism, modernism, areas where, where you, the gospel bunts up against it and disagrees, and other areas that it embraces. Newbegin used this framework to uh, evaluate modernism. The gospel in this case provides the, out, the outside perspective with which to critique culture and to call out it its idols. In the sense, the gospel is actually not too dissimilar to Newbegin himself. Being both an insider and an outsider to the West, he was able to speak into that culture and call out its idols. Uh, I recently sat down with a friend who got to hear Newbegin speak back in the 90s. And uh, he was at this conference in the U.S. And Newbegin uh, got up and said something incredibly controversial, but it was what the church needed to hear. He got up and he said this to, all, remember, all Americans. He says, communism is heresy. And capitalism is paganism. And my friend says, you could, you could have heard a pin drop. Like, they were just deathly quiet. <laughs> but this is what the church needed to hear. Newbegin was an inside-outsider who could call out the church's idols and false assumptions. And, and here's the point. Because Newbegin was able to bring ex- that external perspective, he was able to help the church align more closely with the biblical framework, a more true framework. He helped them to know the truth better. Let's go back to John 18, and it won't be much longer. Jesus says this, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. So up to this point, we've been talking as if the truth is a what. A what. But in actuality, tr- the truth is a who. The truth is a who. 
Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. He is the way. And theoretically, this kind of makes sense because the entire universe emerged from the mind of God and from the word of God. So Jesus hasn't come into the world necessarily just to to point at true things as as he sees them, but he's actually come to reveal himself. His actions were God's actions. His words were God's words. And ultimately, the truth is what we see when we see God. This means that when we want to align ourselves, when we're seeking to align ourselves with the truth, it's, it's not simply, we're not doing that just simply so we can be right. We're, tr- we're trying to align ourselves with Jesus so we can know him better. Edward Klink says this, he is, the ul- he is ultimately the perfect expression of God. For this reason, Jesus is the plumb line for all things seen and unseen, the lens through which the world is to be interpreted and by which it must be judged. He is the gracious extension of light, reality, into a world confined by darkness, distortion. Um, I don't know if you, you guys are familiar with Dr. Del Tackett. He's the one who did the Life Pro- or sorry, the Truth Project, uh, which was brought up by Focus on the Family maybe 15, 20 years ago. Great, still great today. But he says this. He says, truth is not an end in and of itself, but it is the way to life. It is the means to life. The life is, another way of saying that, life is the fruit of abiding in truth. And in the same way, Falsehood and lies lead us to death and destruction. It's no wonder that our enemy called, is called the father of lies and his goal is to kill and deceive and destroy. And here is perhaps what's most staggering about what Pilate's response. He's, you know, he has this throwaway question. Who, like, what is truth, he says to Jesus. It's that postmodern sounding reply. And he completely misses that the truth is standing right in front of him. Every question answered standing right in front of him. He's just so caught up in his mind thinking, is Jesus a threat to Rome? Like, of course Jesus is a threat to Rome. You've got the most powerful being in the universe standing on your doorstep. Of course he's a threat to Rome. But that's not the real question. The real question is, will you open your eyes to see the truth that's standing right in front of you? Would he allow that truth, that the person of Jesus, to conform his opinions and align him with reality? So what about us? What about you? Will you have the humility to hear the truth? Are you willing to hear from external perspectives such that you might be more closely aligned with the truth? Are you willing to have your assumptions challenged? And are you willing to seek diligently in God's word after Christ to know the one who is the truth? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have revealed your truth to us through your son. Thank you that, that Jesus came to this earth and, and showed us who you are in a perfect image. God, I thank you that, uh, yeah, that you can help us to align ourselves more closely with your truth as we seek you diligently. And I pray for us as a church, whether we're from this church or from other local churches, that you'd help us to more closely align ourselves with the truth by seeking you diligently. Lord, open up our, our eyes to see our blind spots. Help us to, to be willing and have the humility to hear from external perspectives that we might more closely align ourselves with you and, and as a result, experience the life that you have to offer. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.